guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Today, just want to speak a little bit about our second reading, these words from St. Paul. If our hope, in, if, we, if, it, if it is only with this life in, uh, that we have had hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. If, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are the most pitiable people of all. This phrase really gives us a chance to identify and consider what, why is it that we follow Jesus? St. Paul is saying that this truth marks and is a characteristic, identifies the life of the disciples of Jesus. That we follow him not for benefits in this life, but in the life to come. Why do I follow Jesus? We're used to ordering our lives and pursuing activities for many different reasons. The things that we pursue give us pleasure, or consolation, or relief. They give us a community. They may perhaps help our health. They prolong our lives. They give us the chance to earn or to save for the future. We seek respect from our neighbors, from our family members, or to obtain a sense of security, stability, or adventure, and risk, right? All sorts of different reasons that we choose things in this life. You see, Paul is saying that's not the set of uh, standards of judgment that are involved in our decision to follow Jesus. Now, it is certainly possible that ordering our life, place, placing Christ at the center of our lives does indeed produce the effects that we would like to have, that it does give us consolation and relief or security or good health. It, it may do that, but it may not. And irrespective of the effect that it has, we still follow him because it's true. An authentic faith is marked by a willingness to follow Christ regardless of the results, to follow simply because we believe it to be true, and the most important truth of all, in fact. Yes, following Jesus may be a source of blessing for us, is a source of blessing for us, but not in this life. And when we begin to think in those terms, what we're doing is we're exchanging the Creator for his creatures. We're exchanging the giver for the gift. And if we do this, if we fall into this very natural, very human way of thinking, it's very common, it's very easy to slip into this set of thoughts. St. Paul says in another part of the New Testament, in his letter to Timothy, they are far from the truth who regard religion as a means of gain. Right? Whether that's financial gain or some other form of gain, when that applies to this life, we are far from the truth. In religion, there is great gain, St. Paul says. There's much to be received but typically not what we expect. It is yet 
to be seen. The glory that is yet to be revealed in us will far surpass our expectations. I'd like to give examples of this and the, the example that I go back to again and again, someone who's been a very important part of my own spiritual and interior life is Father Miguel Pro, one of the martyrs of the Cristiana, the persecution of Mexican Catholics in the 20th century. Father Pro, I know I've told his story before, but just a brief refresher. Born in Mexico, entered the Jesuit order as a man in his 20s, uh, faced a growing persecution on the part of a, a contingent in the Mexican political scene that was anti-Catholic, anti-clerical. And eventually, as they came to power, they persecuted the church and sought to drive it out, to basically force it to go underground. It was forbidden to attend Mass, to receive the sacraments, and if you were a priest doing those things, you were liable to be arrested or even murdered. Father Pro, after being ordained a priest in his late 20s, came to Mexico from Europe where he was trained as a Jesuit. He came back to Mexico knowing full well that in all likelihood he would be captured and possibly killed. Chose for two years to serve the people of Mexico, to provide the sacraments to them underground in secret, often disguised it reads like a spy novel. I mean, he's like a Catholic James Bond sneaking around, undermining the work of these unjust political authorities and serving people at the risk of his own life and often at the risk of theirs. Eventually, he was captured. And the famous photograph of him with his arms extended, with his back against the wall, the moment of his uh, death before the firing squad was the first photograph of a Christian martyrdom in history. And that was published in the newspapers as a way of saying, we got your guy. It's over. You lose. Of course, the effect was the exact opposite. The people who were long-suffering this unjust persecution rose up in a mass demonstration and that whole process ultimately culminated in the, the fall of that, of that unjust regime and the restoration of the rights of the church. And so Father Pro's death, his martyrdom, as a young man, a young priest, with his whole life ahead of him, extremely gifted man, very holy man, was used by the Lord to bring about a, a far greater effect than he could ever have had in this life. And of course, received his reward in the next. His writings were published and collected. He was a beautiful writer, a very poetic soul, and many prayers that he wrote are still with us to this day. I'd like to just share with you one of the meditations that he wrote during the time when the churches and the tabernacles of the churches were empty. So, of course, the soldiers had come throughout Mexico and had broken into the churches, broken into the tabernacles, uh, thrown the hosts on the floor, desecrated them. And the, and the, the churches were empty. Right? The Eucharist was no longer present, was not allowed to be present. He wrote this meditation. Lord, why have you gone? There, beside the sanctuary, in that 
meeting of love and mystery. Beside that flickering lamp of the sanctuary that leaves the sanctuary in shadow. The pilgrims used to come there. The immense caravan of those who carried in their wounded souls the perpetual fright of the coming day. Those who carried the cross of the present and who are weighed down by the death of the past that weighs enormous, heavily upon their hearts, their broken hearts. The sad, the elderly, the orphan, the exhausted, the sick and weak, the hungry, all the many captives of sin, the whole legion of suffering. They used to come to you, Lord, who are star and beacon, and they found in you blessing and consolation in your total protection. They found resignation and balm in their suffering. What pain would not be forgotten with the love of a God that gave his bodily life on the cross at the risk of gaining the souls of all sinners? What sadness could endure? What suffering wouldn't lessen its intensity? What unspeakable pain would not be consoled when there is a God who weeps with us, who suffers with us, and who pleads night and day for us. But you're not there. We don't find you in that sweet meeting of love and in the desolation of our care we ask Lord where have you gone that passage from his from his journal from his writings is to hear someone who is completely infused and overtaken by amazement at the presence of Christ in the Eucharist in the absence of that Eucharist he received the grace of an intense love. How can we receive that intense love, that great intensification of grace in our hearts? Is it the case that our hearts are so hard that only a persecution could bring it about? I don't believe so. I believe it is possible for us to receive that grace, that intense love for the presence of Jesus and his consolation in this, in this sanctuary, in this tabernacle, this Eucharistic presence. As long as we have the example and the intercession and the help of the saints like Father Pro and others who can intercede for us. It's one of the things that the bishops of the United States are calling for in, this, in these coming years, is a recovery of what they're calling Eucharistic amazement being bowled over by this gift that is present to us with such intense generosity. And so I've been praying about how it is that we as a parish who take our name, the Blessed Sacrament, from this Eucharistic mystery, how we can manifest this, how we can grow and receive the gift and the grace of an intense love for Jesus present in the Eucharist.
<clears throat> and in conversation with a number of our parishioners, our Consejo Hispano and other um, stakeholders, you could say, here in the parish, there's been a conversation around <clears throat> how we can intensify and show our love for the Eucharist, even in the act of Holy Communion. So one of the things that we're going to be trying, attempting here in the coming weeks and months is to offer an opportunity, a convenience, to show our reverence and our love for Christ in the way that we receive. Perhaps you've seen other parishes use this, but placing kneelers here in the front, it's very common in the primarily Spanish-speaking masses that folks oftentimes unable to do so without a great deal of pain, kneel down on the floor to receive the Eucharist. And to accommodate that desire, that devotion, we're going to be placing kneelers here in the front, which anyone can use. We can continue to receive in the hand, continue to receive standing, or to receive kneeling as the occasion calls for. But so too, this has prompted an interesting discovery here at our parish. We were doing some digging and excavating of all the storage spaces here, and we found the key to the room that's above the sacristy here. We began, uh, we basically had to kick the door in and find a light switch and begin exploring all the things that were stored there, statues and different things, but we found an interesting piece of history from this parish, the communion room. It was stored after being taken out probably sometime in the 1960s. It was stored in that area, <clears throat> and it was in very good condition. <clears throat> so, out of curiosity, I asked a specialist in liturgical furnishings to take a look and see if it could be restored. And after his examination, he said, absolutely, it certainly would be. be very easy to restore, and at a re very reasonable cost. And even after speaking about this with a couple of uh, former parishioners, people who no longer live here in the area but have ties in their personal history to this parish, and they've already offered to begin helping to fund that restoration. So it would be my hope that in the coming months, hopefully perhaps even in the time for our patronal feast, of the Feast of Corpus Christi, that we'd be able to reinstall that communion rail and to allow that option to be able to receive kneeling as we heard in the Gospel reading last week when the power of Jesus was shown in that miraculous catch of fish, Peter fell to his knees. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus, nonetheless, drawing near to him, saying, Peter, do not be afraid. What a beautiful image for what it means to be close to the Lord in that moment. It changes the whole rhythm of how we would come forward to receive, to have a few moments kneeling, to recollect ourselves, to look upon our beautiful sanctuary up close, to see these candles burning and to pray for the grace of a worthy and loving communion. I believe this could be an important ingredient in recovering our Eucharistic amazement so that together, placing our hope not in this life, but in the life to come and in the blessings of Jesus who has stored up for us a glory beyond our wildest imagining, Together we could glorify and praise him with all our hearts as one family. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, again, thanks for listening. For those of you who might be interested in helping to support the work of restoring the original communion rail, 
to put it back into use here at Blessed Sacrament Church in the Archdiocese of Kansas City. You can reach us using the information in the show notes. Otherwise, you can find us at blessedsacramentkck.org. Regardless, I would appreciate very much your prayers for the fruitfulness of this project. Thank you for all of your support, and the peace of Christ be with you in your hearts and homes.